Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. My name's Francis Martin. I'm a reporter for the Church Times. So far this year, there have been 18 school shootings in the United States and a total of over 200 mass shootings in the country. I spoke with the Bishop of Colorado, the Right Reverend Kim Lucas, about this epidemic of gun violence and her own experience of a shooting in her son's school. Bishop Kim, thank you for joining me. Can you start by explaining what happened on the 22nd of March this year? This year on the 22nd, it was a morning like every other morning. I have uh, 15-year-old twin boys at home and they go to separate high schools. And I was rushing to get them ready and out the door and myself ready and out the door. And as I was about to leave for work, uh, my husband and I received a text from one of our twins uh, who attends East High School here in Denver, that he had left some things at home that he needed for school for a Spanish class and asked if I could drop them by on my way to my office. And I said, of course, and uh, picked up his things and went to the school. I jokingly say, um, we have frequent flyer status. Uh, our son often forgets things. So we're always, my husband and I are always showing up to bring things. And so I was going up the steps into the school um, and I heard sirens and I was standing at the front desk where uh, Mr. Mason usually greets us. He, he knows us by sight and uh, there was no one there. And as I was standing there, uh, several police officers came in with their flak jackets on and their weapons. And they said, we have a report of shots fired. At which point one of the school administrators and teachers dragged me off into an office on the first floor and said, we're in a lockdown. Can you, can you come with us? And locked all the doors and we were in the room while the police canvassed the building. And can you explain what, what had occurred? What, what was the, the, the incident here? Well, apparently about two minutes before I entered the building, there had been shots fired. Uh, and as the, teenage uh, news went around on social media, we learned that a student had shot two of the administrators of the school and fled. And we were on lockdown until the police could assure that the suspect had actually left the building. And uh, that took almost three hours while they searched the entire building and everybody was locked in their classroom or auditorium or office or wherever they were. Were you able to be in in contact with your with your children during that time that you were in lockdown? Yes, I was. I was texting my son, asking him how he was, uh, where he was. Um, he said they had been in a school assembly in the auditorium, and um, the administrators had simply just locked locked them in to keep them safe in the auditorium. Do you worry every day when you send your children to school, given that, well, your, your very immediate personal experience of this now in, in your in your twin school, but also the number of shootings that happen in particularly in school settings in, in the United States. 
Absolutely. I, I worry all the time. And it is something that I've spoken about. Um, I have been the Bishop of Colorado for four years, and I don't recall a year where I haven't had to speak about a shooting in, in somewhere that people should feel safe, like the grocery store or their school. And so that's terrifying as a parent. It's terrifying. It's terrifying that that I realize we have a generation of children who will have this as their normative experience, active shooter drills and um, you know, this, this threat, this realization that they're not safe. I wonder if you could expand on that uh, a little, perhaps, because it's something that's from a, from a UK perspective, I think we find very difficult to get our heads around the idea that this is, uh, or that preparation for such events is part of students' everyday life. In fact, even the presence of guns in it handled by the police uh, in many cases uh, just in 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 a school setting is is a very normal thing and how do you think that affects people i think it's really hard part of the the struggle here is that our relationship with guns is out of balance i mean it it really is i think um i grew up with in in a small town in 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 a rural area where my family hunted so i grew up with guns rifles and shotguns we they they were tools nowadays it seems like guns are part of people's identity in ways that aren't really healthy and it's becoming more and more difficult to have a reasonable conversation about what gun safety could look like for the protection of our children i actually made a remark once that that we're making a Faustian bargain with our guns and from that got death threats because it was very public here that I had said that and it's sad and and it and I think you know people want to always sort of bring up their second amendment rights and I just think it's it's we've used the second amendment to care more about guns than we care about our children's safety what do you think is it in the culture you speak about it this as something that's getting worse what do you think is driving that honestly i consider that the the gun industry in the united states has a brilliant business plan they put guns out bad guys get a hold of them they do horrible things people are terrified and they buy more guns and it would be a brilliant business plan if people weren't dying for it and, and that's just how it works. I mean, people get more guns to feel safe and, and guns can't make us safe, but that that's the way it seems to work. In terms of reducing the number or controlling the number of guns that are around and access to them, there have been efforts, political efforts to do this for, for many, many years. There's been a degree of political will, as I understand it, to do so from uh, during the Obama administration, now during the Biden administration, it doesn't seem that things have have changed. Is that an accurate representation of the of the political situation at the moment? It it has been very hard to to get uh, the political will to make real change. I mean, there have been some changes. There have been laws enacted. Um, so, for instance, things like bump stocks have been legislated against that people should not have access to those things but it's it's a hard fought thing and for me the 
the tough thing is around why is it necessary for private citizens to have weapons of war? We don't we don't need automatic weapons if we're hunting. We don't need uh, weapons of war in our house, I don't think. And that's a, a huge piece. And, and we have all sorts of other issues. We have things that are called ghost guns. So basically you can buy a kit and the kit is legal to sell, but you can put it together in such a way that you've created an illegal gun. So there are all these strange loopholes and things that are that are happening because they're, the gun lobby in the United States is very powerful. There's a lot of money behind it. There's also, of course, that gun lobby is, is propped up politically by the Republican Party, or at least large parts of the Republican Party. In the in the wake of some of the recent school shootings, uh, a Republican member of the House of Representatives, Tim Burchett, made some remarks that were quite widely criticised. He said, we have some very sick, evil people doing some very vile things, and revival seems to be the way to go. His supposition here was that there was nothing we can do about guns themselves, but religious revival would sort the problem out. I asked slightly provocatively, I suppose, do you think there's something there's something in those kind of remarks or, or where do you think Mr. Burchett goes wrong? You know, I do think it is a proposition around hearts and minds. You know, how, how do we move hearts and minds? And what's been particularly troubling for me is that somehow... Uh, guns have been equated with not only patriotism, but they've also been equated with religious faithfulness, which is an odd combination for me. Um, when I tell people what I do, I say I'm a follower of Jesus. And I mean that Jesus that said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The one that said those who live by the sword or the gun <laughs> will die by it. You know, that that is a very odd odd notion that somehow being being a follower of Jesus um, makes you an advocate of violence or even a proponent of violence in terms of, of gun ownership. Um, I find that very strange. And you, you mentioned that it's a, there's a degree to which there's a heart and mind issue though, because for policy to change, people's minds need to change, particularly the minds of lawmakers who are whose minds are currently made up to do what the gun lobbies want them to do. How do you think that kind of cultural change can be affected? Um, you know, that's something I pray about a lot. And I've been praying about it ever since March 22nd, actually. And one of the things that that comes to my mind is that in 19... 55, I believe, Mamie Till um, decided her son Emmett was lynched um, brutally. She decided that she was going to show the world what that was like. She was going to show the way that her child had been brutalized and abused and, and murdered. And she was ridiculed and reviled for that, for having an open casket so people could see that. But what I know is that her courage to do that, to make the United States face the ugliness that it wanted to turn a blind eye to, it made a difference. It changed us uh, in some ways. It galvanized us. And so I, I think that's what has to happen. 
it, it's it's going to be about some parent having the courage to to make us face the brutality and the viciousness and the ugliness that we don't want to look at. Another sort of gun violence related story that I suppose has been in the news fairly recently is Sandy Hook shooting and the long protracted uh, legal battle by parents whose children were murdered there to get justice against those who were spreading disinformation about you know suggesting that it was all a, a hoax and they were all paid crisis actors etc cetera, etc cetera. how much does that lack of uh, trust perhaps in the media and the way that society is split and and people are uh, struggle to reach across that divide how, how much does that prevent that kind of discourse happening that you sort of mentioned there where people have their eyes opened to, to, to the real horrors of what the consequences of those policies are? You know, it, it does make it very difficult because everything right now, and in, in, at least in our political atmosphere, is um, always escalated to shrillness and vilification. And, and so that makes it very hard to have conversations. We just, uh, April 20th, was the anniversary of the Columbine High School massacre here in Colorado that happened in 1999. The problem for me is that we've gone this long and there's there's been really no significant reduction in gun deaths in this country. And it makes the whole process of sort of vilification of, of those who don't agree with you um, to my mind, is is unchristian, but um, it is it is part of our culture now, in ways that are really destructive and really prevent us from making meaningful change, so that all of our people can feel more safe, especially our children. Can you explain what what leaders and and lay members in the Episcopal Church have been doing in order to sort of campaign for change on on gun ownership? So I am a member of. Uh, small gathering of Episcopal bishops called Bishops United Against Gun Violence. And part of what we do is is advocate for gun safety. We try to promote it in real ways. Um, Here in the Episcopal Church of Colorado, we've been working around how suicide is related to gun ownership and working on suicide prevention. We have a, a high suicide rate here. And Statistically, the most likely fatality from a gun is a male killing themselves, a white male killing themselves. And so we have tried to wrap our arms around that in terms of how we educate people, et cetera. We've we've advocated for mental health assistance and and availability for people who need help. So that's that's the kind of work. And and we're actually have have folks on Capitol Hill talking to our leaders in in our government about how we more actively stop this, stop this nonsense. I think I'm I'm right in saying that the teenager who who shot injured the, the school administrators at your children's school, his body was later found and it is thought that he took his own life. How much is this also, and I know you've sort of already answered this question, but if you could perhaps elaborate on how much this is also a challenge about 
mental health, particularly the mental health of young people, as much as it is about the physical aspect of guns? I think it is definitely related to mental health. I think coming out of COVID, it was clear that the the sense of isolation that people were experiencing, um, the sense of loneliness, the sense of alienation is very real. And the young man was 17 years old. And my thought was, how many ways has our society failed that child in such a way that he feels like he, he needed to have a gun at his school? Another sort of facet, I suppose, of, of this conversation in violence in public life and bringing the police in as well. Um, I was I was reading a little about uh, gun violence in Denver and, and about East High School. And it's, I came across a reference uh, in an article saying that Denver's public school system decided to remove its armed school resource officers, which had monitored the school campuses, out of concerns for the treatment of young students of colour. It seems in some ways to be a, a whole storm of, of issues here that you r- remove armed police in because of problems with institutionalised racism but those armed police are only there in the first place to, to try and combat another terrible problem in society. I mean, when you think of it in those terms, do you ever lose hope? Um, it's awful. I always say that there are so many ills and demons for us to fight, but there's an attorney here by the name of Brian Stevenson, and he says you can't advocate, you can't be an advocate for justice if you don't have hope if you don't have hope that things can change. And so that's what I hold on to. I hold on to the reality that things have changed in the United States. Have we combated institutional racism? No, we fight it every day, but we've come a long way. Um, I think we've come a long way um, in the battle against misogyny and, and the battle against violence we we just have to keep at it you know we can't afford to lose hope because the only way that that we can advocate for those kinds of changes is is from a place of hope from from the willingness to believe that things can be better for all of us bishop kim thank you very much indeed thank you i've enjoyed the conversation Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.